Plugged In podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. Joining me today in the studio is Stephen F. Hayward. Dr. Hayward is a senior resident scholar at the Institute of Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley, a visiting professor at the Goldman School of Public Policy, and a member of the board of directors here at IER. He writes frequently for publications such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, National Review, and Claremont Review of Books. He's the author of six books, including a two-volume chronicle of President Ronald Reagan, and his most recent book is Patriotism is Not Enough, Terry Jaffa, Walter Burns, and the Arguments that Redefined American Conservatism. He writes daily at the Powerline blog, one of the nation's most popular political blogs. Uh, Dr. Hayward, thanks for taking the time to sit down with me today. Well, and thank you, Alex. California. Yeah. It's only a coincidence that Powerline blog is sort of, uh, in its name, sounds a little bit like energy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> We're talking today on December 10th, but this will be the first episode I think we are in the new year, so I thought it would be a good opportunity to look uh, look forward into 2020 and talk about a couple of stories that we're going to be keeping our eye on. As I mentioned, you're visiting us here from uh, California, and in the past year, obviously, California's been in the news. You have the situation with PG&E, the wildfires, the battle over CAFE. What's it like to kind of live and work in that environment where you you have somewhat heterodox views on energy and the environment, and uh, California's path, is that in any way sustainable? Uh, yeah, I often describe myself as an inmate in California these days. I mean, I'm a lifelong Californian. I was born and raised there, and it's a glorious place that's been wrecked by too much progressive government, and now it's verging on insanity, right? Uh, so, gosh, I mean, where do you start? Um, you know, we had these blackouts. Uh, talk about irony. It's a state that's moved to wind power, but then when the wind blows, they shut off your power, right? And we had uh, some of those blackouts lasted for some people two, three days, not just a few hours. I know several people without power for two or three days. And by the way, if you're trying to charge a Tesla off the grid, you can't drive anywhere either. Uh, it's just madness. Uh, and part of that is negligence on the part of Pacific Gas Electric, who I've always described as a corporate socialist company, going back a couple of decades at least. Uh, but part of that is also negligence of the regulators in California who uh, refuse to allow utility companies to pass along fairly modest costs for some maintenance and especially you know, clearing brush and trees and debris and, and flammable materials around power lines that would have prevented some of these awful fires. And now we're, we're way behind. And, you know, now saying we may have uh, blackouts like this in high wind conditions, which are perennial condition in California, high winds in the fall, we may have this for years to come. Uh, this is insane. I, I mean, I think now we're in a situation where there may be more reliable electricity in Venezuela than California. And one of my jokes is, is that... Uh, the North Koreans now pass out maps to their citizens of, or pictures of California at night, right? In these large areas. So, you know, that's just one nutty thing. Uh, you know, we have the highest gasoline prices in the country by a lot. It used to be, you know, 75, 80 cents or a dollar a gallon more than the average. Now it's closer to a dollar 50 a gallon more. And there are several reasons for that. We import a lot of Saudi oil because we're, our own production is. Uh, um, fallen, and we don't have a lot of pipelines from other oil-producing states. We have specialized gasoline blends that only are used in California, which I think are obsolete, but all those things run the cost of gasoline way up. So the, uh, as I call it, the freight charge or the premium for living in this otherwise glorious state is now getting really out of hand, and that's not even getting into taxes and other aspects of the state. Sure, the uh, the parity there where 
in an area like Silicon Valley that you would, that we associate with sort of the cradle of new technology and everything where in the same state you have people who are worried about getting access to just basic reliable energy. Well, so, I mean, there's some general things to be thought about, about the, you might say, the social cultural profile of California now. Um, I'm not the first to say, uh, Victor Davis Hanson maybe is the premier person to point this out. Also, Joel Kotkin, who's an old sort of ex-progressive in a lot of ways, both point out that California is now two states. It's a very affluent coastal region with pockets of super affluence, like Silicon Valley, uh, like Hollywood and the west side of Los Angeles, for example. And then you go inland, and that's where you have uh, you know, lower middle class, working class, and lower income people. California now has almost half of the nation's homeless population. It has, I think, over a third of the nation's total welfare caseload. So you have this you know, enormous prosperity on one hand, and out of proportion uh, poverty and uh, you know, income struggles and homelessness on the other. And you know, at some point, you wonder when this can break or when this will last. Uh, and you know, I'd, like, I, I'd like to stay away from making overbroad generalizations about you know, your Silicon Valley elite. It's mostly liberal. I mean, a lot of the, most of the billionaires of Silicon Valley are liberal Democrats. Uh, and, and, you know, there are progressives who live in San Francisco. And uh, you sort of wonder at some point, are they going to realize that high taxes, high regulation is, you know, really rich people can buy their way out of that and find workarounds and it, you know, it doesn't bother them. But at some point, you think it will dawn on people that this mix of governance does not actually work for anybody but the very rich. It doesn't really work even for the very poor who are dependent on, you know, you know welfare programs and so forth. Uh, and at some point, you also think, yeah, we ought to build some pipelines. We ought to reform our refining regulations so our gas prices aren't so out of line, because that's a regressive tax, really. You know, lower income people pay. We now have the highest electricity rates in the continental U.S. by, I think, we're twice the national average for electricity rates. And you would think at some point, people, good progressives would realize that low income people spend a higher proportion of their income on energy, and this isn't the way to do it. And meanwhile, if you zoom out of California and look at the United States as a whole, the uh, the big talk going into 2020 is uh, people debating whether or not the United States is going to be a net oil exporter for the year, right? Yes. So you see, again, parity between the state and then what yeah. what's going on in the national conversation. Um, the EIA and most analysts uh, not only expect America to become a net uh, exporter for the year, but they anticipate the, the U.S. to be one of the few exporting countries to primarily contribute additional crude volumes to the global market, right? right. And when you look at OPEC, their projections for the next five years is to be ramping down production. Just this past Friday, they cut uh, right. their production. Is what we're seeing, at least what it appears on the surface, is it a decline of OPEC? And is it, I guess, can you give us a little bit about, yeah. if that's the case, what would the historical significance of that be? Oh, right. Well, that's, that's a big subject. Uh, so first of all, we'll see if OPEC can make these production cuts stick. The history of OPEC for years is relative success, but always a lot of cheating among its members. They agree on caps to try and keep the price up. But the incentive in any cartel is always to defect. doesn't matter what the cartel is. The long-term history of cartels is usually unsuccessful, where you have some competitive markets and other people who can enter into it. And that's what's happened in the last... 10 years, it's really the, the fracking revolution, as we know, has unlocked so much oil and gas. That's just beginning. I mean, you know, other parts of the world that have favorable geology are just barely beginning to use some of the best technology that we've been using. And 
So there's those two things happening. One is is that uh, it used to be we we trembled in our boots that OPEC would reduce supply or have an oil embargo like they did in the '70s, which I'm old enough to remember, uh, and that you know Russia wants high oil prices. That's their main energy is their main export commodity, and we have broken the geopolitical power of that. We can't necessarily fill in the gap of uh, any large disruption in the world oil market, but in a normal market, which we have most of the time. We now are in a commanding position to say, oh, that's nice, o OPEC, if you're going to cut production. Uh, call us back when you need some new customers or something like that. Uh, and then domestically, I think there's a similar dynamic happening, and that would be between oil-producing states and, I'll put it this way, oil and gas-hostile states. So, you know, Pennsylvania or Ohio in the, in the uh, Marcellus and Utica shales have enjoyed enormous new waves of prosperity. Meanwhile, New York which has favorable geology, that's the same range as all the Pennsylvania uh, uh, gas production, is resolutely opposing it, refusing to build pipelines, and increasingly, I think, I mean, this is almost East Germany, West Germany. I think increasingly the gulf between the prosperity of Pennsylvania that includes tax revenues to the government and the relative uh, uh, unprosperity or anti-prosperity of New York is going to become overwhelming except that New York City is a little bit like San Francisco. It's this crazy island unto itself. Uh, but you see that in other states. Uh, you know, Colorado is, um, we call it a purplish state politically. But boy, that's a big split in that state between sort of, you know, trendy progressives who don't like uh, fossil fuels and a very vibrant energy sector that is responsible for a lot of prosperity in Colorado. And that's a very delicate thing uh, to see how that's going to play out. I say delicate, it's close, I think, right? Um, and so increasingly, I think you're going to see your Texas, Oklahoma, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Dakota. It's a great story. They're going to pull away from other states that either don't have energy or are hostile to it. And the big question mark, uh, or one big question mark, is what's going to happen to coal? Uh, natural gas is mostly outcompeting coal because it's gotten so abundant and cheap. Uh, meanwhile, China and India show no hesitation of adding more coal-fired power because they need a lot new, lot more power. And China right now is trying to increase more imports from other places in Asia and Australia. But who knows? I'm wondering if coal exports to China might be part of some grand trade deal that, as we're talking right now, sure. is still uh, in the balance. We don't know what's going to happen. But I wouldn't be at all surprised to see that be... Um, one aspect of a trade deal, if we can make one. We've seen a trend of coal exports yeah. slowly tick up. It's never yes. really been that big, but right. as we would expect, um, slowly we've seen a little bit of an in increase. Well, a lot of our, you know, as you know, a lot of our, especially Western coal, Powder River Basin coal is the low sulfur coal, which uh, India and China ought to want that a lot. So you mentioned the, the fracking revolution. Uh, you know, part of the shift to U.S. production if you look historically, oil production has largely been done in state-owned enterprises in countries where private property rights really aren't well-defined or secured. Right. You know, the list could go on of, yeah, you know, yeah. maybe the problems of oil production abroad, right? Right. Uh, that shift in the institutions in which oil is being produced, looking long-term 20, 30 years for the energy industry, how important of a development is that? Oh, that's a hugely important, and I think not enough of that has happened. And my favorite example is, uh, what, Pemex. Is that the name of the Mexican national oil company? You know, for years, it's going to be a state-owned company. Stay away. We don't want any involvement from the private sector. We don't want any involvement from foreigners. And their production just kept falling and falling and falling as conditions of existing wells got tougher, as, as wells always do as you uh, deplete them over the years. And what, it's four, five, six years ago now? I'm not sure when, but fairly recently, 
the Mexicans said, ah, you know what? Maybe we need to allow some outside investment after all. Maybe we need more. I'm not, I'm sure they privatized exactly. Uh, but the point is the problems of oil production in the developing world and you know, Latin America, Africa is much less technological than it is exactly institutional structure. You know, I, I haven't looked lately, but I think Angola still very tightly controls as joint ventures between government-owned oil companies. And I think uh, those, com those countries that do that eventually are going to succumb to market pressure uh, and say, you know, we have to allow more private property rights. That, that means, by the way, you know, the owners of the resource benefit from it. I mean, one big difference between, say, even just Great Britain and North Dakota is uh, if you want to drill on some farmer or rancher's land for gas, they get a cut of the action through a royalty because, you know, American property, in most cases, you have the mineral rights. That's not true in Great Britain. So you go to some rancher or farmer in Britain, say, I want to drill for gas on your property. They say, what's in it for me? You're going to put up a noisy rig and you have trucks going back and forth and, a, you know, you'll rent my land maybe, but it's not worth it. And so the, the incentives need to come into a better alignment with uh, the nature of the technology and the industry today. And I think that will happen but it, it could be slow. I mean, Britain's took a, taken a big step back recently by saying, let's halt on fracking. I don't know why they did that, but they've done it. So we'll see what happens there. It's certainly competitive pressure from the U.S. is yes. going to play a big role everywhere, right? Absolutely. Yes, right. So obviously in 2020, the big story in politics that, you know, everyone's focus is going to be on is going to be the election, right? Right. Um, in the past year, we've seen Democratic candidates outline a position that's pretty extreme for energy and the environment. Most of my life, politicians secure their base in the primary and then tack back to the middle um, in right. the general election. What are the chances that we see whoever the nominee is for Democrats move off of the Green New Deal and um, sort of central planning almost writ large yeah. for, for energy and the environment, which, which seems to be what they've outlined there, right? That's an interesting question. On the one hand, sort of the climate crisis or whatever sort of you know, <laughs> overheated ha -ha rhetoric that they use is uh, sort of orthodoxy for liberals and progressives and therefore in the Democratic Party. On the other hand, the candidates who wanted to make that the number, I mean, we hear this is the greatest issue facing the planet ever. So you think that'd be the main thing they talk about, and it hasn't been. Uh, you know, the leading issues for the Democrats are, you know, Medicare for all, income inequality, um, you know, those two, really. Uh, and, and the, you know, I've watched a lot of debates. The talk about climate change has been pretty perfunctory. And, the, you know, the one candidate who was going to make it his centerpiece was Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington. And he never got up above 1% in the polls, one of the first to drop out. Now, Tom Steyer, who, you know, he's a committed, uh, um, I hesitate to use the word fanatic, but it kind of applies. Climate change is his number one thing in his life. And he's got a lot of money to spend. He's trying to buy his way into the race and not doing very well at it. Uh, so this is an odd thing. And I think partly what it is, is it's, there's really no disagreement or even shading uh, um, of opinion on policy amongst Democrats. And so they don't need a debate about it. I mean, they're not really going to debate who has a better climate solution. They tend to talk in generalities. Now, as you go forward into the election, you pick one person who may yet win the nomination. That's Elizabeth Warren, who said she would ban fracking and tie up all federal land for more oil and gas exploration and production. First of all, I'm not sure the president has the unilateral authority to do that, but leave that aside. My first thought was, just as a cynical political observer is, well, kiss Pennsylvania goodbye if you're going to ban fracking. 
you know, that was a swing state important to Trump. And any chance of Democrats getting Ohio back goes out the window for the same reason. And I think you put Colorado in play. Uh, you know, there have been several anti-energy initiatives on the ballot in recent years in Colorado. Some of the local ones have passed because, you know, it is controversial to have uh, oil and gas production and fracking in your backyard. But statewide initiatives have not gotten very far. And I think if you went to Colorado with the message, I'm going to shut down your energy sector or a large, vibrant part of it, I think suddenly that state is in play suddenly for Trump. So in New Mexico. And, you know, Trump's very unpopular in Colorado in the general polls. And so what a blunder politically to say that, I think. But that's where we are. Uh, we'll see if they back away from the frothier, unspecific and kind of crazy versions of the Green New Deal or not. Uh, but I, I do think that, you know, what liberal voters seem to care about more is health care uh, and the whole in income inequality issue and, you know, sort of those two mainly. Oh, some of the identity issues we hear about so much, that's obviously front and center. Uh, for liberal voters, and they seem at the end of the day to care more about that. They all say the right thing on climate change from their point of view, but they don't seem to care about it as deeply as the rhetoric suggests they should. Sure, and then on the other side of that, you've seen members of the GOP kind of grasping around for something to say or do on yeah. climate change, right? There's a couple ways of thinking about this. One is just old-fashioned bargaining, deal-making, where uh, you know, like in a labor negotiation with a company or, you know, contract negotiation, you say, I want something crazy. And you say, I'm not going to give you something crazy. I'll give you something one quarter crazy. And the other side, fine, I'll take it. Right. And so, you know, you look at some of the, you know, the really crazy parts of the Green New Deal and you say, that's never going to happen. True. Uh, but, you know, if you're not thinking in a hard headed way about this, uh, I think you could see a lot of Republicans and moderate Democrats all say, well, but we'll, you know, let's continue or even make larger the production tax credit for wind. Let's do more subsidies for electric cars and batteries and so forth, all of which are, you know, I think not very effective policies. Okay, that could happen. I think you see more generally a lot of Republicans are just worn down by the relentlessness of what I call the climate campaign. And so they think we have to have something positive to say. And that's an impulse in politics you see a lot over the years. Uh, but, you know, if you go back to, say, the war on poverty in the 60s, uh, a lot of Republicans went in for what I used to call low-budget liberalism. You know, the liberals would want to spend a ginormous sum of money on a social problem. And Republicans would say, well, we're for, we're, we want to do something about that problem, too. It's a real problem. Let's just spend, uh, you know, half of what you propose. And now the temptation that they're succumbing to is what other people have called being Al Gore light. And, you know... I, Look, I mean, there's a reasonable um, there's a reasonable basis for saying we ought to conduct some thought experiments of risk under uncertainty. The, the low probability of a high climate impact in 75 years that equals something that you want to look at and say what what would be the best ways of thinking about securing against that in the future. A lot of different remedies you might think of, but at the end of the day, uh, uh, even if you have a serious and robust contingency plan for energy development, energy transitions over the next few decades. Uh, the environmentalists will never love you, right? Uh, I like to point out that uh, the first President Bush, George H.W. Bush, you know, pushed hard for the Clean Air Act, signed us up for the Kyoto Protocol, signed us up for the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, and several other very pro-environment measures. I had uh, the former head of the Wilderness Society, who was his EPA director, Bill Riley. He got no support and no endorsements from environmental groups when he ran for re-election. 
and you know, I think that a lot of, not all of them, but a lot of environmental groups decided a long time ago to become adjuncts of the Democratic Party. That's fine if that's what they want to be, but I, I think a lot of Republican office holders need to understand that that's the political lay of the land, and they're not going to get any love from them and shouldn't expect it. So with the election dominating so much of the conversation, my last question is just, What's the one story in energy and the environment that you think might get less of the attention uh, or that might go unseen in 2020? Yeah, I think I want to circle back to the whole fracking revolution and say this about it. You know, knowledgeable listeners of, of this show and followers of IER will know that the fracking revolution happened kind of quietly out beyond the beltway. Uh, you know, innovations, uh, technological innovations and in industry that are both the fracking technology and directional drilling, right? It's actually being able to know where we're drilling for stuff a mile down and five miles over. And all that happened quietly, and I like to joke, except it's not a joke, is that if Washington had known this was happening, they surely would have done something to stop it. So we, we do all this talk about innovation and falling prices for solar panels and windmills and so forth. But boy, the real innovation has been in conventional energy technology. I first saw this really up front in, in person when I attended several years ago now, the Offshore Technology Conference in Houston. It's the Super Bowl for oil and gas. And it's kind of a misnomer to call it offshore technology because lots of it was onshore technology too. They fill the Astrodome and several arenas yeah. next to it with just all kinds of uh, you know, different small, big companies showing off their wares. Uh, sometimes, you know, you go talk to people in an exhibit booth and they're a little cagey. They don't necessarily want to give away a trade secret or hint to their competitors where they're advancing in their research. What I realized is what, there was more innovation going on there and represented in that room than there was in all these trade shows for solar panels and windmills. And so most people don't know, uh, the general public, that natural gas has gone from, what, about $14 a thousand cubic feet 15 years ago to it. 250 today there's been you know you have to look at microchips and other certain technologies to see that kind of price decline most people are totally unaware of this and that's what's driven a lot of the decline of coal-fired power is just natural gas is now cheaper uh, and that's the big story in energy and why would you want to stop that why would you want to say oh this is all terrible which is what we're hearing from a lot of the environmentalists i think that's a great place to end on my guest today has been stephen f hayward encourage you all to visit his blog, Powerline Blog. Dr. Hayward, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks, Alex. It was fun. Keep up the good work you guys do here at IER.